We'll open up Mark chapter 7 today. Mark chapter 7. I hope you'll open up your Bibles with me as we continue our sermon series through the, through the gospel of Mark, this uh, journey on the road with Jesus. Jesus is moving, all right? In Mark chapter 8, we're going to begin reading at verse 31 through the end of that chapter there, and we find Jesus, he's, he's on the move, he's on the road. He makes this long 120-mile trek to basically wind up where, just about where he started. So let's see Jesus on this journey in Mark chapter eight, chapter 7, beginning at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. We've seen him there before. And when they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would work in our midst as we walk our way through this passage. We ask for the help of your spirit to understand, to know, to give attention, to not be distracted. But Lord, most of all, to walk in light of what we receive by faith. We thank you for your grace at work in this man's life and in our lives. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning's passage causes a number of questions for the reader. Uh, I would entitle the, this morning's message as Signs of Redemption. As I look at this passage, I find a lot of odd behavior Honestly, I read this passage numerous times during the course of this week, and it didn't hit me until we were down the hall today that Jesus was like one out-of-order step from giving a man a wet willy. I mean, he literally put his fingers in his ears and spit on his finger. Like, this is different. This is not what I'm used to seeing when I read the Bible or really much of anything except for a children's book. Why the fingers in the ears? Why spitting and touching someone's tongue. I'm just saying I had questions. Let me first admit that there is some of this that fits a sort of pattern of healing that Jesus maintains throughout his ministry. There's a rich physicality to so much of Jesus' miraculous work. Whether he's touching someone's, someone's touching Jesus' cloak, and he says power came out of him, or Jesus touching a leper. <laughs> you hear that? Or a demon-possessed man. But then at other times, Jesus doesn't touch anybody. He tells the man, without touching him, to reach out his hand, and his hand is healed. Or he tells the woman to go home for the child because the demon's gone. Didn't even see the kid. I think there's a simple explanation for Jesus' actions in this particular healing. And it's in a detail that's right in the topic of 
this section of the scripture. This man whom he heals is deaf. And he's mute. But he can see. And so Jesus interacts with him. All that Jesus does, he gives clear signs of his intentions for this man. He touches the man's ears. Yes, and you're this. That'll be healed. He looks up into heaven. That's where the power is going to come from. He lets out a visible sigh. And then he speaks a command. And it's the first words that this man ever heard. Jesus gives signs of redemption to this man. I want to walk through each one of those and each one of the way that Jesus works in this passage for just a moment. We've already seen a number of times in Mark, touch. Jesus is often reaching out very physically. Let's remember when Jesus comes and, and, and the John the Baptist comes before him. John the Baptist's word is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus shows up and he says, yeah, it is. Do you know why? Because the king is at hand. Like literally, if you took your hand like this, you could touch him. Jesus is tangible. He's right there. Where in every other case in history, when you have a situation of someone who is unclean or diseased, the unclean touches the clean, and the clean is defiled. But Jesus, we see him numerous times in Mark, reaching out to touch suffering, and the sufferer is the one who is healed. Jesus is upending things because the kingdom of heaven is here, and it's an upside-down kingdom that brings about redemption rather than fallenness like our kingdoms do. In doing in the, doing all of this touching and bringing hearing and speech to this man, Jesus comes as physically close as possible to this man's suffering as he could. Now, I think there's something in there for us. Maybe just a little side note at least. You see, it's one thing to know that there's suffering in our county. You know it. I know it. It's one thing to think about it, talk about it, pull up Florida Today and read articles about it, about suffering in our county. It's another thing to draw so close to the suffering in our county that if you reached out your hand, you could physically touch it. Those are different things, aren't they? And we keep seeing Jesus be so close to suffering that he could reach out his hands and touch it. How did the passage begin? Jesus traveled 120 miles doing this. And he winds up right here. I wonder if one of the things you and I need to do is we need to travel, maybe not 120, but Brevard County is awfully tall. Maybe we need to travel a couple miles. Maybe we even need to leave our neighborhood and go and become so physically close that if we reached out our hand, we would touch suffering. Now that's going to require that perhaps we leave the comfort of our homes, the natural routines of a typical, genuinely good life. 
Perhaps we need to leave the natural buffers of safety that we've built around ourselves. Good buffers of safety to protect those that God has given to us to protect. Perhaps God would call us to leave those natural buffers and go out in faith to draw next to suffering and get to know the suffering that's so easy around us if we could see it. Which brings us to this, the look. You know, one of the greatest I don't know if it's a skill, I don't know if that's quite the right word, but just observations about those who have been the most effective in ministry in history is they have an ability to look. They have an ability to see. I think that one of the greatest organs of ministry is vision. Jesus sees. But what's interesting in this passage is where does he look? He's already looked and seen this man, and the people have brought him to him. But then where does Jesus look? Well, if we look at our passage, in verse 33, he takes him aside privately from the crowd, and he put his fingers in his ears, spitting, touched his tongue. In verse 34, he looked up to heaven. Man, follow Jesus' eyes. He's got great vision. What Jesus does is he's communicating where the power comes from. It's a look of dependence. Jesus isn't a man with godlike powers. Do you hear that? Jesus is not a man who is a miracle worker. The, he is God. He is the very power of heaven made flesh. And that look communicates heaven as the power. The power of his miracle is heaven itself. How easy it would have been for Jesus to do all these things. He is God, after all. He can do whatever he wants. He can do it quickly. Okay, deaf man, touch an ear, go. Right? In fact, don't even touch him. Just, hey, all you deaf people in that town, healed. All those who are suffering, all those who are demon-possessed, healed. How easy. Surely the miracles could have become a simple routine for Jesus. But over and over again, we see Jesus look up in dependence. We see him cry out to a father. We see him go off into prayer. Jesus' ministry is always actively, actively before the sight of heaven. Maybe you know what it is to do spiritual things on a regular basis. I know many of you do. We addressed partners. We have many people who have partnered well. We have many people who are qualified for eldership right here. Many right here in this room because you've partnered well. Perhaps you know what it is to do spiritual things on a regular basis, to serve, to teach others week in, week out, day in, day out. It becomes routine, something you just do. You've gotten good at it even. Serving in such a way without active Dependence on God, though, has two negative implications. First, you've ceased to glorify God in the heart of your service. If we go about the routine of service, if you know how to do it, and then you do it, and then you get it done, in a simple routine without a look to heaven and dependence, our service is no longer a dependent act of worship, but an act of our own will in the midst of our busy routine. Do you see that? We lose the heart to glorify God. And, and in fact, we're going to lose more than our heart. We're going to lose a lot of our will 
that would sustain us. We're going to get tired and we're going to grow weary of doing good because it's not worship anymore. Secondly, more than likely you've ceased to glorify God as the power of your service. It would appear, because you've gotten so good at it and it's such a routine and there's no look up to the Lord, it would appear that our service is in our own strength and so we end up pointing not to Jesus Christ but to our own self-righteousness as a means of our salvation. It's so easy to do. I want to give a very on-the-ground example, an example that, let me just preface it and say, I don't want to give. I asked my wife's permission to give it, and um, I don't want to give it because it's about homeschooling. My wife and I homeschool. Friends, that's all I want to say about homeschooling in, in this illustration. There are lots of ways to faithfully raise your children and educate them right here in this county. Go do it, and go make disciples, okay? Let's do that. My wife and I, as we were discerning for our household-level decision, what we would do, we considered, well, number one reason why I encouraged that particular decision for our household was that we wanted our children to see adults praying during the course of the day, actively, out loud, praying during the course of the day. Now, we've got four kids, and we got busy homeschooling, and we prayed, we, we, we did, but we've graduated one and we're about to graduate another. And I looked back and I said, I'm not sure that we did what we set out to do. We homeschooled every day. We educated our children. We spent time with them. We were busy being faithful and doing the right thing, right? Engaged in a very spiritual activity. And we failed to look up over and over again. Friends, I wonder, I don't know what your faithfulness is. I think it was faithful for us to, to educate in the way we have, and we're going to continue to in the way we have. I don't know what your faithful labor is. But I wonder, are you years into that labor and you haven't looked up for a long time? Independence. I think this next one will help. Jesus begins with this he moves on to this look, he touches, he looks up, and then he sighs. There's something powerfully guttural about this. We see Jesus do the same sort of thing when he sees the weeping of Lazarus' sister after the death of Lazarus. I want to suggest that there's something going on in Jesus' sigh that gives us a glimpse into the inner working of his suffering-relieving miracles. Like, how do you... How do you heal someone? What is required to bring about miraculous healing? How does that work? We have to remember, listen, death and disease and all suffering is the direct result of sin. It is God's righteous curse. Now listen, secondly, it is not right to say that each individual disease or blindness or deafness is the direct result of a specific sin. All suffering is the result of our sin bringing suffering into this world. But no individual suffering is necessarily the result of a particular sin. Are you with me so far? Two errors that we can make in this understanding. No. The presence of suffering in humanity is because we live in a world that's touched by the fall, but Jesus keeps stepping in and interrupting the curse. 
He keeps reversing the fall, interrupting God's righteous curse about sin. How does he do that? How is that righteous to do? To interrupt God's own curse upon sinners. How does Jesus interrupt the righteous curse of God? He takes the curse upon himself. That's how. He doesn't interrupt the curse at all. He moves the curse. That in his body, on the tree, he would suffer every suffering. He would fill up the cup of wrath and drink it to its full. Every ounce of death, every ounce of disease that are among the people he came to redeem, every ounce of God's justice that is to be found there was taken by Jesus upon the cross. Let me suggest the answer to the question, why does Jesus sigh? I think it's because Jesus knows intimately the price that he himself will pay to take away the man's suffering. Jesus isn't giving out handouts. He is making an exchange. He knows the price of the sacrifice of his perfect life to take away sin's curse. And because the cross of the cross, the words of the hymnist are true, there is no place where earth's sorrows are more felt than in heaven. Jesus knows your sorrow even more than you ever will. Praise be to God. He knows your curse more than you ever will. That's the very design of redemption. He took it in your place. All those who trust in him. All of Jesus' ministry is in full view of the cross. How much more should all of our ministry be in full view of the cross of Christ? We may sigh because the burden of sin and suffering is so great. We ought to sigh, and perhaps we ought to sigh more. But, may, but in light of grace, the grace of the cross... We sigh ultimately no more. His yoke is easy and his burden is light because he has borne it on the cross. We take our sigh to the cross. Jesus has borne the weight of the curse and in our life of ministry, we serve in light of Jesus' lifting the curse of the cross. Friends, that's our proclamation, which leads us to the, third, to the fourth thing. Our proclamation, the word. Now, this is an interesting one. You see that, and looking up, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. Did the deaf man understand the final sign? Could he hear it? I would suggest that those are the first words the man heard in a long, long time. When is Jesus' word effective? Does it wait a little while? Did it take five minutes to sink in? God's word works. And it worked for that man on that day. How does Jesus heal the man? By the power and authority of his word. How has God worked? By his word. He speaks and it is so. The signs of redemption are tangible, dependent, in view of the cross, and accomplished by the word. I want to walk through each one of them very quickly one more time. Tangible. Touch. There is no strictly spiritual cure. 
The cure of redemption, or the gospel, reaches into this world to touch and transform human beings and fleshed creatures. There is no strictly spiritual cure. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Invade this reality, Lord. Secondly, not only is it tangible, it's dependent. As it is in heaven, redemption and transformation is by the power of heaven to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through him. That's why we should look up all the time. It's why I should have prayed so many more times. My children should have seen me looking up so many more times. Third, it should be in view of the cross. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What do we have that is not according to the riches of his grace? The grace of God is evident in the cross, and through the work of the cross, the grace of God has purchased the benefits of redemption. We've seen the signs of redemption, but what are the benefits of redemption? Are they not forgiveness of sin? A transformed life and the hope of an eternal inheritance? When we live our lives in view of the cross, we live our lives in, in light of the fruit of the gospel in our lives and that we go to proclaim, man, that guards us against so many things. He's purchased the means of our own ministry. One of the things that guards against is self-righteousness. In ministry in view of the cross has no room for self-righteousness, but proclaims the righteousness of Christ. Our ministry becomes one of witness and proclamation because the work is already done. There's nothing that we can do to add to it. When Jesus healed the man, he looked forward to the work of the cross as the righteous foundation for the healing. Jesus proclaimed forgiveness of sin. He looked forward to the grace of the cross upon which he would give his life as a ransom for many, including this man. Our proclamation, our service, our comfort, our love is in light of the already accomplished work of grace, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And all of this is ultimately accomplished by his word. The power of God is in his word. Years ago, I put a note card on my desk. It was my first day in the office when I entered a pastoral ministry in Wisconsin. And I just wrote down these words. I will speak only what he has spoken. Now, I say a lot of words. They're not all direct quotations of the Bible. But I'll tell you this. Anything that might be fruitful or effective is from his word, is in light of of God's own word. Our ministry is according to the word, not ours. According to his wisdom, not ours. According to his power, not ours. And to his glory, not ours. It's for this reason we will remain devoted to the word. There's one final sign in this passage, okay? One more sign. Look at it with me. Jesus charged them. Oh, by the way, he spoke. He spoke. How did he speak? Plainly. Oh, you see, when God heals, he heals. All the way and immediately. It's a beautiful thing. The work of God. They were astonished in verse 37, beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. 
Man, what a good word. Somebody should write a song called that or something, right? He has done all things well. That's the final sign. The people were astonished at that sign. In our passage, Jesus makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And the response of the people was, he has done all things well. In a moment, we'll reference Isaiah 35. But first, let's note that in the chapters leading up to Isaiah 35, God has been pronouncing severe judgment, utter devastation upon Israel and the surrounding nations leading up to Isaiah 35. The land, the passages say, and particularly in the middle of chapter 34, the land is going to be reduced to dust and wild beasts. Curse, right? We've already talked about it. Then, as is often the case with the prophets, after pronouncing judgment, chapter 35 begins to describe the healing and redemption of the land. In that description, in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 35, here's how it says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Note the word in verse 6. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same word here in Isaiah as Mark uses in our passage today, the mute speak. When the people note that Jesus does all things well, I wonder if Mark is telling us Jesus is bringing the redemption that Isaiah spoke about. Where the land, let us agree, the land is being reduced to dust and wild beasts. But where the redemption of Jesus Christ breaks in, miracle happens. Jesus has done all things well. He's reached out. He's touched his own hand to the touch of the suffering. He's looked up to heaven to give glory to God. He's understood the weight of lifting the curse. He's brought healing by the word of his power. But when we say Jesus has done all things well, we're not like, man, he's good. And he's so good. Like, when I read this, I was, I'm like, what is going on? I wouldn't have thought of half of what Jesus did here, and I couldn't have done any of it. But when we say that he's done all things well, we recognize that Jesus is the Messiah prophesied of old. Jesus isn't really good at what he does. He's redeemer. Nothing less. He meets every qualification of redeemer so that he might bring about the restoration of all things. Acts chapter 3. Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer and he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, in light of the one who has done all things well, even to the cross and resurrection. Repent, therefore. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Friends, the Lord has come. He dwelt among us, and he's shown us his glory, and he has done all things well until he finally said it's finished. And he will come again. 
And when he comes again, he will bring the final application of redemption on the basis of his perfect victory won in his first coming. That means for everyone in this room, today is the day of repentance. Repent and believe this gospel and you will be saved. In just a a couple moments. We're going to take communion together. At the end of explaining the way that we take communion together, we read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians, and we read there, and then at the end of it, I always add this little phrase, Lord, come quickly. I'm wondering when is the congregation going to catch on to that and say it with me? Lord, come quickly. Every time I do, it's with a deep longing. Lord, this place is devastated by the fall. We need you to return. Come quickly. But you know this with a heavy heart too. Because when he comes, the time of repentance is over. And there's people in this room that need to repent. Repent quickly. And Lord, come quickly. Heavenly Father, you have done all things well. You've taught us by such an interesting interaction. You've shown us your power, your glory. You've also shown us how we could walk as your disciples. You've also called us to repentance because the Messiah has come and the days are short and you're returning. I pray that every heart here would hear the seriousness of the call to repent and turn to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and be saved. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this work by your word and your spirit in the midst of the congregation here today. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.